Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 13 years of law enforcement analysis experience. He is a military intelligence analyst turned intel analyst turned crime analyst. He is currently the president of the Northern Regional Crime Analyst Network, also known as NORCAN, representing Auburn Police Department in the great state of Washington. Please welcome Joe Ryan. Joe, how are we doing? I am very well, Jason. Thank you for having me. This is I've been looking forward to this. So you have to get it often. There's Joe Ryan from LexisNexis, and then there's <laughs> Joe Ryan from Washington. And I, I must admit, uh, Joe Ryan from LexisNexis and I go way back, early 2000s. He was actually my intern manager when I first started. So I definitely did a double take when I realized that there was another Joe Ryan in the law enforcement analysis community. Yes, yes. And I realized that early on. And uh, see, I'm glad we brought this up now because I wasn't entirely convinced that we would get halfway through this podcast <laughs> and you would realize that you were not, in fact, talking to LexisNexis Joe Ryan. It used to happen quite often, a little bit less so now, but um, I have received many messages via LinkedIn or my, my work channels. And it's often uh, apparent quickly that he thinks that uh, the, the, the person looking for Joe is in fact, looking for the other Joe, or they're confused about when I made the jump to Washington. But um, I did meet him some years ago at an IACA conference in Bellevue here in Washington. We had a good laugh about it. And I must add that uh, if any of us feels the professional need to change our name, my legal name is actually Joseph Ryan, whereas his is not. So I feel (laughs) I have the upper hand in that argument. Yes, his is Michael. So (laughs) you have a good point there. And it's interesting because I think there for a while, for me, you were the Joe Ryan from Washington, and then Joe Ryan was just Joe Ryan. It wasn't any qualifications. I was like, not the one from Washington <laughs> State, which right. is bad. But it's funny because I always had this desire. This is very, very, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? It's narcissistic of me that I always <laughs> want. I wanted to create the Jason Elder Conference, where I just invite everybody that's named Jason Elder to the conference. <laughs> And then you didn't have to introduce yourself because you're all named Jason Elder and from all different walks of life. And so you would probably get, yeah, get a nice cross cut of everybody. I know in my case, that'd be great. There is now a good rookie pitcher for the Tampa Bay Rays named Joe Ryan. And uh, if I could go to a conference in that, that'd be pretty cool. Very cool. (laughs) (laughs) Using your concept. (laughs) All right. So let's get into this. How did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? I started off, of course, in the uh, the military, and when I was getting ready to get out about a year after, or excuse me, before I was ready to get out, I just started kind of beating down doors virtually. Uh, I was deployed at the time, trying to figure out how to pivot. I was ready to, to remain stateside, settle down a little bit, and found an article on the then differently named, but now Washington State Fusion Center in a Washington State Patrol sergeant was quoted in that article talking about a cadre of analysts they had employed there in Seattle. Uh, And I grew up near there and I thought that's what I wanted to do. So I 
basically started a year-long harassment of him, um, <laughs> asking about jobs, telling him about when I'm going to be back in the area, that sort of thing. And fortunately, all of the harassment paid off in this case. And eventually, excuse me, backgrounding and everything, was able to start there in 20, uh, 2009. And that was sort of a kind of a hybrid model. It's a joint effort. If those who don't know fusion centers or state, local, federal uh, representatives work there, the local analysts of which I was one uh, focusing on street gangs at the time. So my work primarily revolved around working with local law enforcement. And then that was, that was sort of the road paved for where I am now. So what was your focus when you were in the military on analysis? Uh, Focus there, I was in signals intelligence analyst. So that's basically, um, trying to exploit uh, weaknesses in the other side's technology and communication devices. Deployed for a lot of it, which a little bit of a downside, of course. Being in Iraq for, I think, a total of two and a half years, not always the best of times, of course, but the job itself, the analysis, the, the work out in the field, that was great. And that was, that was definitely my catalyst to wanting to do more of that, but not necessarily in a combat zone. So. Yeah. So how much of that is data and how much is that of briefings? Meaning people are reporting back to you what they're seeing out onto the field. Uh, for, for me specifically, most of it was we, we are the collectors and analyzers. Uh, and most of our forward reporting would have gone either up the chain or perhaps sharing with another unit, collecting a different type of intel. It changed depending on my assignment. I had several, probably four or five main assignments over two deployments and where my responsibilities uh, you know, were a little bit different, where I was maybe the primary for a while, briefing our, our command structure, um, whereas other times I'm out on missions with everybody collecting it firsthand. So um, it kind of kind of came and went depending on what we were up to and who we were assigned to as a unit. Okay. So are you using various gadgets and gizmos when you're out on the field? Yes. Yes, lots of gadgets and gizmos, some of which are, you know, remain classified, of course, but uh, some of them, uh, I laugh now, in fact, one of them, this wasn't necessarily out in the field, this would be actually back at the base, but we would exploit phones via Celebrate, a very early iteration of Celebrate, which of course now law enforcement has um, access to across the country. At the time, though, the suitcase, or like a uh, tough box sized (laughs) container, it contained the Celebrate system, which involved tons of cords and tons of hookups <laughs> for tons of different phones. Smartphones weren't on board yet, at least in mass. So I laugh now because looking at what we have now versus back then, it's, uh, it's changed quite a bit. But um, yeah, lots of, lots of gadgets and gizmos. That is, that is fascinating then. And it's certainly, well, on the one hand, it is, as long as you had the right cord, you probably was easier from there but you know today geez it it might be easier without all the cords but there's also so much more data that you're dealing with with the phones today yes a lot easier to get into them back then too of course for two reasons one the technology and two in that environment when you are in another country operating as we were we we're not certainly under the same set of rules that we are here in the states but yeah definitely a a different playbook but some enough similarities that uh, it's been fun to watch it progress yeah so how was the transition from military intelligence to uh, the fusion intelligence you know it was in some ways pretty smooth in other ways not at all smooth where i landed there at the fusion center many of the analysts there were reservists prior military like myself that had already kind of made that pivot to what we would do in the states um so in that way there was there was some a lot of help along the way. But in other ways, I, I think probably for me, the, the number one difference was during deployments, I, was, I wasn't I was just the office guy. I'm out there 
doing stuff out in the real world, whereas I do a lot less of that, of course, in, in the law enforcement environment as a civilian. And so that, that took some adjustment, literally the cubicle life took some adjustment. But at the same time, I was, I was definitely not in a place where I wanted to maintain the frequent deployments and, and all that comes along with being in the army. So. And then you're focusing on gangs then. So what are some tasks that you're doing as you're starting in the Fusion Center? Yeah, the, the idea was to kind of look regionally in a, in a three-county area in the Seattle area, Snohomish, King, and Pierce counties, was to look at the gang problem, street gang problem, as a, you know, from a regional level instead of an individual agency. The idea, and, and it continues in different iterations, uh, is sound. But as, as you know, and many listeners probably know, it is not always easy if you're the, I'm not only the outsider because I'm not a smart model, enforcement officer, but I'm the outsider to any agency that I'm trying to communicate with. Mm -hmm. And having the ability at the Fusion Center to go to these PDs and spend time there and not just an hour or two meet and greet, but days, weeks, months, that was critical. And we went through a period where that was accepted and blessed and other periods where it was not. So it was a little bit bumpy, didn't, didn't always uh, have the opportunity to get that buy-in from the agencies. And then uh, a couple of kind of major cases occurred, one of which was gang related that I was assigned to. And then I basically spent pretty much my entire work week uh, at a local agency working on a specific case with other analysts. And that was really the, the huge difference maker, the huge icebreaker. Okay. And then this gets into one of your badge stories, your analyst badge story, your career defining case or project here. And this deals with a 2010 robbery series, correct? Uh, yeah, uh, the 2010 was a uh, gang shooting, actually. Oh, um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. So when I was still there at the Fusion Center, um, there was a, a major uh, daylight, I think eight victims in total, shooting in uh, Kent, Washington. And that sort of kicked off a local task force, multiple agencies from analysts to detectives to operatives. So a lot of work goes in there. And then at that point, I'm working with a handful of other analysts who I, I contact with today that were just fantastic. That was the door opener to the eventual job posting at Auburn where I where I am today. All right. Let's unpack that case a little bit. So you you have the, the gang violence there and a task force is created. What is your role in this? Yeah, so Task Force is created uh, locally, and then we all basically find a home uh, in, in, a, in a common place in King County. So we're all physically housed together um, in terms of our work. And as analysts, and I think at different times, there was three to five of us. Some of us kind of uh, were able to maintain several months. Some of us had to get pulled back to where we came from, from our agencies. But lots of intel work, uh, lots of jail calls, lots of, you know, pulling over uh, field intel that officers have collected, social media. It was, it was an intel project more than anything. Uh, we're trying to unpack why it happened, of course. Also, who at the time, there's multiple shooters, multiple victims. So you have to figure out that and then of course the gang dynamics of who's who's beefing with who and, and all of that sort of thing yeah so it seems like this would be a couple of different levels because obviously first and foremost you're trying to identify who is responsible for the violence that took place and actually pulling the triggers and doing the violence but then there's the the gang aspect of it like who's calling the shots who initiated this whole beef and try to curb that? Is that is that pretty much the two tier that you were trying to tackle? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, not that I don't know that this is unique necessarily to that shooting. However, um, in this case, 
this was not necessarily a targeted shooting. It was it was gangs that, that already had animosity toward one another for sure. But it actually occurred at a, a musical event where basically the performer inc- was a kind of encouraging, hey, throw up your sign, be proud of where you're from. And then, well, lo and behold, you have folks from different factors throwing up their sign, realizing that their worst enemy is standing next to them. And then <laughs> guns come out and, and bad things happen. So a little bit different in that it wasn't, you know, the drive targeted drive-by unknown rival gang member. It was everybody's going to a common event and, oh, hey, we've now been told to identify ourselves. And now that we've identified ourselves, we're all really mad and we're going to pull out our guns. So it was a little bit different in that way. But uh, and, and the fact that it occurred, again, daytime hours. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of people there on a in a busy part of town you know a lot of factors which also sort of results in a little bit of political pressure locally they want this case solved it's all over the headlines locally and people want answers so there's a component there that isn't always with your uh, everyday gang shooting which unfortunately does occur quite often so all right so then you you get your dedicated space there you get your computer you get all the access to the databases and then day to day you're just running down leads and trying to gather more information through databases and through various sources of information. As you look back at that time, for analysts that get thrown into this situation where they're taken from their office and put in that situation, what advice do you have for those that might get thrown into that and might have a similar situation? Yeah, well, in my case, I I was fortunate. I was working with some very seasoned analysts in addition to some newer folks like myself in terms of law enforcement. So, I mean, the the obvious one, I think, is just, you know, learn from those around you if, if they're, um, you know, in the position to show you where they've been and how they got here and watch what they do, uh, which I did a lot of. And, and a lot of it kind of comes a little bit easy in this case anyway. There, there is so much information out there and not enough people to tackle it. So there was never a Ooh, what should I do today? Moment. <laughs> it was what am I not going to get done today, and how do I prioritize it? So it, it, I can think about it in hindsight, but in the moment, it's like we've got a pile of stuff to do. Let's go. Um, and even though the work is different than what I'm used to from from my army days and even my you know first couple of years at the fusion center, there's a lot of similarities. And and that's I think one thing I do miss being in Auburn, which I love. But in the army and at the fusion center, I'm working with lots of analysts. There's a team of us. Whereas Auburn and many many agencies that employ Prime analysts were the you know were the sole sole provider. So that camaraderie you have to find somewhere else. Which I can certainly make my pitch for where to find that. But that's def- definitely a different environment. But the the welcome thing to me to being on this local task force was, hey, this is what I'm used to. We're all like this is a, a team effort. So it was it was a bit of a natural transition in some ways. Yeah, and my first thought, what advice that I would have to somebody thrown into this. Obviously, after you get established and you get all your credentialing done and you can access to this different databases and whatnot, just be thoughtful and ask the question of like how the documentation is going to take place. Because you start running names and places and phone numbers and addresses through databases you know, you got to keep track of all those sources of where you get all this information. And so if there isn't an established way of how you're going to document your sources, make sure you have a game plan in mind. Absolutely. Especially when you're dealing in volume, like you said, you you lose that and you can't find it. You can't figure out how you got somewhere. How many times have we done that? You've arrived at some really cool piece of information and you don't remember how you, what path you took to get there. Yeah. 
hundred percent. So what was the result of the case? The result was some convictions. It was a pretty chaotic. There's some self-defense in there. There's, there's no clean way to explain it, to be quite honest. I think the case itself probably didn't maybe end the way many of us would have wanted, but the end result of, you know, that gang working group, I guess, is what it ended up becoming, um, lasted for a few more years after that and tackled other gang issues. That was probably the best takeaway more than the ca- that case specifically. But unfortunately, as these things go, we've all seen it. A problem pops up. Law enforcement figures out a way to tackle it, maybe together in a, in a um, regional effort sort of thing. And then you squash that problem a little bit or eliminate it maybe in some cases. And then you move on to something else. And what do you know, that problem creeps back up. So I've seen that iter- that thing happen several times over the last 10 years where we do this this gang stuff. We tamp it down a little bit. We move on to another problem and, and then it comes back. So that cycle is still very much alive. But I, I we, we, uh, we had a couple of really successful years there working uh, more collaboratively. So you mentioned that this leads you to your current position with Auburn PD. Before we get to that transition, you were at this fusion center for about two and a half years. I think there seems to be some burnout with some folks when they work at some of these fusion centers. I'm not sure if it's just the mundane work of running data through databases or the environment or what it is, but it does seem like people get a couple years of experience through fusion centers and then they're off to doing something else. So, you know, you're, you're now on your 10th year there at Auburn after spending two and a half years at the fusion center. And while I think as somebody just starting out in the field, I think fusion centers have a lot of benefits because you get to network so much with various agencies. I do wonder if there is a burnout effect that the, just you don't see many people staying decades at fusion centers. What do you think about that? Yeah, I would agree. Although I think there's probably more there than just the burnout factor. Shauna Gibson, former um, guest on your podcast and friend of mine, we worked at the fusion center. We had some overlap there. And I think we both saw this a little bit where you have one, just starters, the Every fusion center is unique. So I I guess my perspective is definitely coming from ours. I can't speak for all of them and they're all run a little bit differently. But at ours, you ended up having enough two different types of analysts that would work there. One was someone like me, kind of new or maybe transitioning out of something like the military in my case. That's a lot of the time. And then second, it would often be someone on their second career. Maybe they've completed a career as a sworn law enforcement officer. Maybe they've done something else, but they've transitioned away. And a lot of times it's because they have a retirement. So in our case, it was, it was very much a logistical and benefits issue as well. So it's a contract job, there's no benefits, and you're under a constant threat of losing funding. You know you have a job next fiscal year. And if you're, you know, if you're new in your career or even mid-career and you don't have you know, sort of a backup or something else going on, that's not a real appealing place to be. So I think that plays in pretty heavily. Um, and I know it did here. Um, and I know there's just a bunch of us from, from my days in the Fusion Center that have all taken some similar paths and they've, uh, they've moved on to agencies. Shauna and I both work at a King County agency directly now, and there's other examples of that. So I think they have their challenges with, with just the logistics and the funding sources too. Hmm. All right. So then let's talk about your transition to Auburn Police Department. Yeah. So uh, right about the time that the that specific gang investigation was winding down, we were, you know, agencies are getting a little antsy. They want some of their 
their people back, their detectives, their analysts that they'd kind of basically loaned out. As that thing's winding up, winding down, another uh, investigation not too long after that comes along, completely unrelated to gangs, but a similar setup and that a huge regional effort is put together. Uh, this is a missing child case. Analysts and, and investigators and you name it were, were basically all housed in one place to try to tackle that. Similar effort, different type of crime. And that is kind of what led eventually to additional, you know, contacts with local law enforcement agencies. My time at, uh, in the Kent area on that gang shooting, I had been introduced to some Auburn folks. And then one day, I believe it was my wife who found it. Um, mm -hmm. and I was on all the sites, but she says, Hey, this, this job just popped up on my, I don't remember if it was monster maybe at the time or indeed or something. She said, is this what, this kind of seems like something you'd be interested in kind of what you're doing. And I was elated. Uh, we lived very nearby Auburn at the time. And it was, I felt like it was my job. I wanted, I wanted it uh, maybe too desperate, <laughs> wanted that job so bad. And then um, you know, went through that process, of course, and all of the things you need to do to get there, but uh, eventually landed in. And By this point though, you are really getting a feel of analysis and that you have a general understanding. You got some of these big cases under your belt. You've been working for a couple of years. So you've known the databases, you're studying gangs. How does that translate into now going from Intel analyst Joe Ryan to crime analyst Joe Ryan at a police department? Well, I joke that my first few years, if not Currently, to this day, a little bit of that is I have an imposter syndrome because I still feel in my heart of hearts that I am an Intel analyst. Okay. That is not my title. However, a lot of my day to day at Auburn, that's kind of what it is. Uh, you know, we've all seen the, the hundred versions of an analyst or how a department can deploy their analysts and what mm -hmm. tasks they have them working on. Mine is definitely leaning in the Intel direction. I am not particularly gifted at some of the, some of the core concepts even of, uh, of your more traditional, I, I guess, uh, crime analyst. So for me, maybe it's, I don't know, denial, imposter, <laughs> call it what you will, but I, I still feel as though I, it, it, I have uh, that Intel background and that's still kind of my approach to a lot of the work I do. I certainly obviously do other things as well, but I can't tell you how many times I've been in a meeting and I'm, you know, I'm on the board for, for our regional association and I, I still sometimes look in the room and I go, wow, I have got to be the dumbest person sitting around this table. How did I get here? And when when is the moment going to happen that people figure out that I don't belong? So I don't think that ever quite goes away. But I have the uh, the desire to, of course, expand on my skill sets. But also that Intel piece is, is definitely never going away. That's something I continue to employ each day. So Okay. Oh, good. And then so it's a mixture of crime analysis and Intel analysis, it sounds like certainly you're you're working on cases and then you're doing bulletins maps and other products there at the police department absolutely so, so let's get into the the other badge story so this is is this the crime series i i think i read my notes wrong yeah so that that was sort of the first thing that comes to mind and the, with the badge story concept that you have on your show is I have since this is this is occurring in 2013 is when it kicks off the series, but I'm still new at Auburn. I've only been here, I don't know, roughly a year. I'm still trying to win hearts and minds, so to speak. People don't necessarily haven't uh, encountered me or seen my product yet. Not everyone at the department anyway. You're still in that period where you're trying to prove yourself. So this pops up and it's basically a very involved uh, robbery series. The typical targeted victim is a student at our college in Auburn. And we, of course, have a group of suspects, and these robberies are occurring regularly. We spin up 
you know, nightly, uh, nightly surveillance. We've got, you know, leads coming in. We've got video. We've got, you know, all these things. We're trying to identify them. And then once we identify them, the real hard part is, of course, trying to pin them and build up a strong enough case that they go away because they are, they are terrorizing, uh, I would say, probably the entire population of the college, but certainly the segment that they were picking on. So it kind of gave me the opportunity as an analyst. So these nightly uh, surveillance ops were on, I would be part of that. So we had trackers out there. We had other things that needed real-time work to be done on. And it kind of gave me the opportunity to be part of that crew and also show that I can add some value, even though I'm not the one out, you know, banging down doors or, or doing the active surveillance. So it was a real opportunity for me to work with basically our entire investigations unit uh, and many other members of the department that were part of it and kind of have an opportunity to, to show off a little bit, not show off, but show, show what I could bring. And that was a real turning point. Uh, we've since had plenty of other series that could be likened to that, plenty of other things that we've had to do, spin up, you know, larger investigations and, and all that ops and stuff. Um, but that was, I think, kind of the first one. Um, so it sticks out as a real turning point. Yeah. So this kind of leads back to your, your military days then. So you're out on the field and you are working with detectives to help with this robbery series. Exactly what are you doing as you're out on the field to help out with the series? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm primarily at the station, although I do roll out a few times just to, oh, okay. to see it for myself. I, I do like to do that, but uh, I'm primarily based at the station. When they're out there, they're seeing stuff, calling out information, whether it's plates or addresses, doing workups on those to see if it connects to anything that we already know. The tracker, um, this is, I mean, it's not that long ago, but it's just long enough ago that we had you know, some technological stuff there where it was sometimes easier for a, uh, a stationary person to be following that tracker versus someone on a mobile. And so just keeping up with that, anything new as it's coming in. And then after the fact, not necessarily during the ops, but trying to collate all that data and who do we know? How are these people connected to one another? What are they driving? You know, all the, the link chart type stuff. There's many link charts involved with this case, trying to keep track of the who's who. Were you able to do some forecasting with this case? Uh, I mean, not really. I mean, I, I, I think it's one of those, like if I were to tell them, and I, I hope I knew this well enough then, I certainly know it now, but um, if I were to tell them that I predict a robbery is going to happen on, on this date at, between these times, it would have been a no kidding, tell me something we don't know moment because, I mean, they were so frequent and so consistent that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't really much of a task to predict. It was like, we're probably going to have a robbery tomorrow between... 5 and 7 p.m. because we had one the last four out of the last seven days or whatever. So it wasn't didn't really lend itself to that because it was, uh, quite honestly, they were just so prolific. And they were hitting the same part of town. I mean, it was the complicated part was packaging it so we can get strong case, not so much trying to figure out where they were going because they were local. So, yeah. So how did they get napped? Uh, eventually, basically in, co in concert with the, the tracker and then building cases, some montages, you know, traditional stuff in uh, some of the robberies on some of the crew. Of course, the goal would have been all of the robberies on all of the crew, but but it did squash it. In fact, the, the MO of robbing college students, of course, will never go away completely, but that particular crew has not come back to that activity. That's okay. me knocking on wood. Uh, since that time, they're into plenty of other criminal stuff, but <laughs> that, that particular angle has stopped. Yeah, so why do you think they were, for lack of a better word, successful for so long? Their targets were foreign exchange students attending our college. So these are students that have, in, in, in some cases, uh, limited English skills. Their view of policing was often different than where they came from versus here. So the, we, A, might not get that report in a timely manner. 
we might not know the robbery occurred until the next day and they tell a student, a fellow student, and maybe that student talks to school security or something along those lines. And then uh, a lot of times, you know, they're, it's the identification problem too. They're, you know, walking down the street and in the evening hours or whatever, it's dark already at that time of year and not necessarily going to get a pick on a montage. So while we can say, hey, we're pretty sure it's them because we've seen this car five times or whatever, we have to believe that it's them. But uh, pulling it all together was, was not always easy given the circumstances we have. Hey, this is uh, Steve Belts. And I've got a pet peeve I want to share with you folks. You know, we all have the uh, cell phone driving issue, but I kind of take it down more to the local level here. It's not dangerous, but extremely annoying. I'm having to make my way through airports now again, and and you get that person in front of you that's either reading something off their cell phone or talking to somebody on their cell phone, and, and you're trying to get to your gate, and you don't realize that people are backing up behind them, just like as if they were driving a car, uh, get off your cell phones and or pull over to the curb with your cell phone in the, in the airport and uh, get it out of the way. So appreciate it. Thanks. Hey, this is Shauna Gibson from the Pacific Northwest. This is to all you crazy PEMCO drivers out there. Do you know what a zipper merge is? It is when you let somebody else get in front of you and then somebody comes in behind you. You really don't have to push everybody out. So May you all learn the zipper merge and may the 405 and I-5 be a little bit more pleasant to drive down. Good luck with that, all of you crazy drivers. Hi, I'm Joanne. I'm a crime analyst with the Saskatoon Police Service. A public service announcement that I have is for, especially for junior analysts, but also senior analysts, just be true to yourself and recognize that the police culture that you're in shouldn't necessarily shape who you are, but you have something to bring towards your service as a benefit as well. Yeah, let's uh, let's move on then, because you got another case here. You got an arson case from 2016. You'd like to talk about? Yeah, sorry to fill it up. I just I, I couldn't. I guess I couldn't. No, I like choose, the, But uh, I like that, the story, so you keep them coming. <laughs> the arson series was fascinating, tragic. Fortunately, no loss of life. But uh, we we started seeing some kind of random fires, but nothing that would lead us to believe anything too crazy yet. We see a flag burned. We see. We see some other like kind of more what you'd expect, maybe a, a, the transient population, a warming fire almost. But then they start to escalate. We see the memorial site for a homicide victim in Auburn torched. And now and then we start to see garages torched and, and it graduates on into houses. And we know we have a problem. So even early on when we just had some of the smaller ones, Auburn's meeting with our uh, Valley Regional Fire Authority in our area. Uh, and we're trying to figure this out. So the amount of personnel and time spent on this over the course of, geez, probably three to four months is enormous. What ends up being our suspect was primarily traveling on a bicycle. It's dark. It's often pouring down rain. It's in Washington. Uh, <laughs> they light a small fire. Some of them take off. Some of them don't. And it's not hard at all for someone on a bike to get out of there. So identifying the person was was certainly uh took some time and lots kind of similar to that robbery uh, series we talked about just lots of technical needs mapping alone you know we brought in uh, the ATF who has a lot of resources and also a lot of knowledge on sort of the mind of an arsonist so and one of the things the ATF had communicated to us was the distance 
the offender probably lives through the fires. So instantly there's a mapping component we need. We already, of course, wanted to map the fires themselves in a, on a more basic level, but now we're trying to figure out maybe some radiuses. Okay, these are where our fires have been. Most of them are pretty concentrated in a certain part of town. At the time, I did not have full access to Esri tools. I had a more basic level sort of local Esri tool that was built by our folks at the city which was fantastic for certain things, but it's, it, it was not real great for doing more intense things and it, even simpler things like printing out the map. Everybody wanted the, the plotter size map on the wall of the briefing room because we spent most of our lives in the briefing room for three months and they want to be able to look at that map. We didn't really have a great way to project it digitally at the time. We do now. So that kind of busted the doors open on the, the map argument. Like, look, there's a clear need. The PD needs this thing. And um, I, I think part of it maybe also is I hassled our IT and GIS folks so often that <laughs> they realize that hey maybe I, this will stop if we if we if we didn't field them some tools so they were fantastic about that I have full access now more mm -hmm. access than I even know how to use quite honestly and our GIS folks continue to be super supportive of projects we take on but um, uh, yeah lots of things popped up in that timeline maker I believe it is literally timelinemaker.com came out of that investigation it is a very simple fairly cheap product you can buy off the shelf. It's a mom and pop operation, but it just makes quick work of throwing together a quick timeline. It's, it's, you're not going to do a ton of analysis with it, but for, for visual representation, it's great. We had that where we acquired that during the course of the investigation. So this was more of a, unfortunately, sometimes you learn those lessons in the heat of the moment. But the good news is now looking back five, six years later, we fixed a lot of that stuff. We, we've acquired things that we could use in future investigations and not just arson series. We certainly hope to not have one of those again, but but in other uh, other crimes and series that we tackle. So All right. So these are pretty concentrated, as you said, and that and now you know after the fact that the, the suspect's riding a bike around. So how was he picking his targets uh i i think randomly i think opportunity mm. i'm not sure we ever have a clear answer to that for the most part i you know you get that arson and this is me talking not any sort of you know arson is mind expert but you get that arson bug and you just you apparently want to set things on fire so um <laughs> they were in fact concentrated and relatively close to his anchor point but we're, we're not sure that it was any sort of like you know payback or jilted uh, fires against someone who we knew or anything like that I think largely it was, you know, opportunity and time and place. Yeah. What, was there any other advice that you got from the APF? Uh, yeah, they gave us a lot. They, of course, study these things. So we early on, in fact, I, I've considered maybe presenting this at a conference or something because I find it interesting. But early on, we don't know much yet. We just know we have a lot of fires and we meet with the ATF and they give us some advice on who we might be looking for. I throw together in probably 15 minutes right before we're all going to get together in a briefing of people that make sense based on what they told us. Mm -hmm. And the list, which a lot of it made sense. One of them was a convicted arsonist. One of them was a, um, had some other stuff in his past that led the ATF to believe you know, they might be responsible. So the list made total sense. Of course, not everyone's going to be the suspect. One of them turned out to be though. One of them on that makeshift 15 minute list turned out <laughs> to be our guy. We had to get there. We had, you know, had to build that, but they had some, some great resources. And if God forbid anyone deals with that, like I'm talking serial arson, you know, nightly fire sort of situation, the ATF can be of huge help. And that's another two with the sort of the political pressure, as you can imagine, if your town is on fire, it's not just the PD <laughs> that knows about this, it's everybody. So we had, we had a whole other piece to manage expectations from the community and leadership within the city that yes, we are doing something. We are working 24 hours a day to, to solve this, but that's, you know, 
if you don't solve it in 60 minutes, like on the TV show, you, you get some <laughs> angry, you get some angry citizens sometimes. So, yeah. So how did he get caught? Technology. Yeah. Technology got him. I can't probably go into too much detail, but Prince helped. That, that was the first break was Prince. Oh, okay. And then eventually uh, some other technological breaks, but uh, we had identified him before being able to actually uh, have, have PC. So, yeah. Okay. Well, good, good deal. So, you know, one aspect that I want to talk to you about with your current position there at Auburn police department is you have some responsibilities that I don't normally see or hear about when I talk to civilian analysts at a police department. For instance, you are the treasurer of their police officers association. And I I also know that you're about to go into some training regarding bullet casing evidence. So yes, I, I find it fascinating that you're getting you're you're spreading your wings a little bit and getting into various things that I don't normally hear civilian analysts getting into. Yeah, I, I find myself in a position I am I'm very fortunate. I have some real great advocates at the PD for the Nibin, the bullet casing stuff. A huge shout out to a good friend of mine, John Postola. He is a detective at Auburn. He is a believer in leveraging you know, any resource we can, sworn or unsworn. And if a duty can be done and within, of course, legal boundary by a civilian, why not? Uh, There's no threat there. So that's a huge part is having those advocates that see your worth and hopefully you've done something to prove that worth. And then with the Officers Association, that's kind of funny because I had worked there a couple of years and was approached by someone who was currently on that board. And they said, why haven't you joined the Officers Association? And I said, well, I didn't know I was allowed to. I no one told me about it when I was hired. You know, the process for hiring a civilian at my agency isn't quite as informative as, as an officer gets. So I didn't really know much. And I said, well, sure, I'd love to. So I joined. And in our case, our, our association, this is separate from our union guild representative. This is a nonprofit 501c3 whose primary responsibility is to support the officers in times of need and also our community. So we do a lot of charitable work in the community. Um, And then I don't know, within a year or two of that, a a friend of mine at work who was on the board said, you should should join. And I did. And I've actually found that it's a really rewarding uh, thing to be a part of from from shopping for, you know, maybe children and families in need during the holidays and other times throughout the year to supporting officers that might be going through something, providing meals on holidays, Christmas and Thanksgiving when, when lots of crews are still working. It's pretty fun to be a part of. It's rewarding and it's different. It really doesn't have a whole lot to do with my stated job. And there's some time, of course, a lot of this time is off hours, but it's fun. It sort of fills a, a different, I think, a different sort of professional uh, want or desire of mine to uh, to do something different and make a difference. So, Yeah, and certainly uh, give you an opportunity to network with different officers and to be seen as part of the team. So that is, it sounds like very rewarding. Yes, absolutely. Um, with the, the bullet casings, then just, uh, I know the training's coming up next month but i guess just kind of lay out what exactly you're going to be doing and the training that you're going to take yeah so i of course haven't gone through it so i certainly don't know every little thing but for years now the uh, atf has led the effort to study forensically bullets and how excuse me bullets and casings casings is actually kind of the, the world i'll be in and how guns leave prints in common on those casings and you can tie in lead format these are just leads that are generated you can tie shootings or even other types of gun crime when you get a gun in a case to one another, and you can build cases that way. So 
we've been doing this for quite some time. We should be submitting 100%. Uh, we're not quite there yet, but then frequently, a uh, daily, we receive notification from the, the lab, Washington State Crime Lab, with, hey, this casing you submitted to us in you know this case number, this shooting is tied into Seattle's or Pierce County's or whoever it may be. And it's really interesting stuff. Well, up until now, it's primarily been a tech at the lab that does that, multiple techs at multiple labs that do that. And then I think a few law enforcement uh, officers are trained to do that. This is just the preliminary. You would have a much more learned uh, scientist doing the, the more exact stuff. But to get that lead, you can be trained by those those lab professionals. So that opportunity popped up recently. And again, an advocate at the multiple advocates of the department, uh, a sergeant in our investigations unit and, and um, Detective Postova were like, hey, this actually would make sense. So myself and one of our other detectives will be going to training to be able to submit those ourselves. And we can turn those around quickly. If we have a call out in the middle of the night, we're trying to get some leads, maybe uh, we can head up to the lab at two o'clock in the morning and take care of that. So I'm looking forward to it. I don't know what I don't know <laughs> and how much work will be involved maybe just yet, but I'm grateful that they're willing to Look at it that way. And then especially in this world, we find ourselves in currently we have, you know, some staffing challenges. So if if I can be the one doing that at times, if that detective needs to be doing detective stuff, then I think it's a win for our department. So I'm grateful that the opportunity is there. Looking forward to the training. So no, that that sounds very interesting. And I uh, look forward to catching up with you later after you've taken the class and have done it for a while to see how it all worked out. Yeah. Yeah, All right. So to. let's move on to Norcan now, because you are the current president. And for those that aren't familiar with Norcan, they're one of the more influential regional associations with the IACA. I, I find that any regional association that actually holds their own conference to be pretty influential. And certainly, whether it's a symposium or training, NORCAN fits the bill there. So what is NORCAN up to these days? Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I, I'm a huge fan, of course, of my own association and also just a huge fan in general of any analyst joining their local one if it's not here. We, like everyone else, we had to pivot our our previously scheduled live conference was uh, set to take place last year, spring of 2021. Lots of heartache went into those decisions. We hemmed and hawed about whether to make it live because we theoretically could have. It would have been a whole different experience and, and probably resulted in fewer attendees just based on the requirements we had. So we had to pivot online, which somehow planning an online conference turns out to be more work than planning a live conference. <laughs> I'm not sure how, how that plays out, but um, we had a fantastic committee led by Jill Hat from Medford uh, PD in Oregon that made that to the average attendee look seamless when in fact there was a ton of work going on behind the scenes. And you know, the, the idea was the same. You know, We had case briefings and trainings on specific uh, pieces of software or techniques. Um, some of them were coming from within our own ranks. Brian Salzig from Clark County, Washington is a frequent presenter and longtime Norcan member. Um, we had many others locally. And then we also, because it was virtual, kind of had the opportunity to actually bring in folks that we might not have been able to have had in the past, either for you know financial or whatever reason. So for example, for the first time ever, we had uh, someone from across the Atlantic, Steve French, who I believe has also been on your podcast. Oh, Steve, yes. Um, was a presenter at our uh, conference, and it was a fantastic presentation, actually, on a gang-related investigation we did there. So it was, was it the motorcycle cool. gang one. Uh, no, it was it oh, was okay. uh, not motorcycle gangs. It was drugs and and other craziness. Okay. Um, yeah, 
because he talked but, about uh, the motorcycle gangs when he was on the show. He thought he was going to turn that into a presentation. So I was curious if that's what he did with you. Oh, gotcha. Fantastic guy. So what a great opportunity and, you know, silver linings. I think we all have to find those over the last couple of years, especially. Our live conference is a huge hit. I find it to be so rewarding and so refreshing. In fact, Brian Salsi, who I mentioned before, had one of my favorite comments post-conference. Because this is how I feel, but I always wonder if I'm the biggest nerd in the room or the biggest <laughs> proponent because I am so involved. But he said he likened the end of our virtual conference where no one is actually together except for three of us, I think four of us got together just to manage the platform. Everyone's in their own offices or at their houses. And he said leaving the virtual conference reminded him of leaving summer camp as a kid. <laughs> and to me, that was probably the great. And I, I think I told him that at the time and hopefully he hears this because it was the greatest one compliment. But two, I was like, you took the words right out of my mouth because I'm actually a little bit depressed that it's over, despite the fact that it was complete and total chaos and a lot of work. So, <laughs> so yeah, our big thing is networking, networking and training and bringing people together, whether it's the big one, which is, you know, a conference style event, uh, which we do every other year. And then usually in the, the year in between, we usually host some sort of uh, lengthier one topic uh, thing and maybe OSINT or something else. And then just throughout the year, we try to put together, you know, whether it's a webinar or even just local analyst meeting to talk about whatever. During the pandemic, we did happy hours, more of a social you know, social gathering rather than work, work evident comes up, but uh, just trying to stay in contact with one another and, and make things personal, make friends, which is, I think, my probably my whole pitch to stay sane in the law enforcement world and probably to stay sane in any any profession, make those connections and make those friends. Like there were many times where we would jump on a call, especially early 2020, mid 2020, and you didn't really necessarily have an agenda other than I want to talk to some people because we're used to meeting in person. We're used to having lunch together after our you know, work-related Intel sharing meetings or our NORCAN meetings. Tried to fill that void. I know we've all been through this and it was kind of great for 2020, but obviously I think we've all reached burnout. Zooms are not a great replacement <laughs> for uh, the real thing, but uh, we look forward to hopefully doing the real thing again coming up here soon. So. All right. And then how many do you usually get at a conference? We're usually, I don't know, seven, between probably 70 and 100. All right. And uh, we have found, and this is, this is a, you know, it's just a different style of conference than, say, an IACA conference, which is fantastic, of course. Ours is a little more intimate. We do get, you know, folks from out of our area, which is fantastic. Everybody is welcome, everybody in any, but it does lend itself when, when it is smaller. You, you tend to, it's a little, maybe a little easier to find your niche or find your group. Uh, and how many times I've been able to just share a share a meal or a drink or something with colleagues from all over and catch up on personalized, catch up on what they might be doing in work. It's been a great experience. We've done four now, including that virtual, and we'll be we'll be spinning up number five here uh, very quickly. So, so given that you're in the Pacific Northwest, what's the Canadian influence? You know, not a lot to be honest. We we have had historically uh, a few members from from BC primarily, and we would welcome additional. I mean, we won't turn anyone away. We would love to have more of them in, but uh, to be honest, as far as our membership goes, mm -hmm. um, not, not a ton, not a ton. All right. Then is there anything else that you want to talk about in terms of Norcan? Uh, well, I could probably do an entire podcast on uh, Norcan, but I will just say briefly, I don't know if meme is the right word, but they're, you know, the term get yourself friends like these. And then there's usually a picture accompanying it, doing some, someone doing something cool for another person. But I would say that applies here. Find yourself work friends, personal friends. Uh, this advice probably spills far out from, from what we do for a living, but folks that uh, have your back, 
mentally especially and i think that's real important something we've talked about something trina cook i think addressed on your podcast the importance of that in our line of work especially so shout out to a ton of norcan friends of mine over the years that i that i can't possibly name all of but one that does come to mind dave hutchinson from pierce county uh, sheriff's department just a stand-up human being and someone i'm proud to have served on the norcan board with and, and continue to this day to to share work stuff from time to time as we overlap so find friends find friends like that all right very good all right so let's touch on personal interest now and you're a baseball fan yeah I, I find it interesting uh, baseball seems to be one of those sports that man when you're a baseball fan there is just so much there to unpack because it's so cerebral and there's just so much strategy and so much to think about and so certainly again we could do a whole podcast on baseball easily <laughs> so recently i saw in the headlines about the dh and so it looks yes. like they're gonna get a, they're gonna have dh in both leagues in major league baseball which is hasn't happened i don't know in how long but basically for years the american league was the only one that had the the dh or do i have that backwards is uh, it, no no was, you're right so it, it, yeah. it in, historically it started out the dh didn't exist at all until the early 70s and then since that time the american league has had it and the national league hasn't which is yeah i think maybe one of the only sports where there's two different sets of rules yeah so where do you land on that <laughs> yeah well, yeah, oh, that's such a great question. I, I think overall I'm, I'm for the DH being unilaterally applied. I will miss some of the just quirky moments you get when pitchers try to hit and they look about like I would if I was trying to hit a major league uh, pitcher, which is to say not great. They are, you know, they're focused on their pitching craft, not their hitting craft. So, but the odd thing is they've, uh, many of them come from high school where they're the best hitters as well, but they lose that over the years. So yeah. I'm, I'm for it. Um, I, I do find it funny because they're the, the purest in baseball. Baseball goes back so far and there's so many traditionalists. They are losing their minds over this. It is an abomination. DH would, would be applied in the National League. And I think of a good friend of my family's in particular who has been a Cardinals fan for probably most of his 90-something years. I know he is quite angry now. In fact, I look forward to talking to him about it. But it's probably a good idea. I just hope they play games because we are waiting. Yeah, currently in a lockout. So, yeah, I think that is always comes up when I talk to people about baseball, about the purest versus the desire for the game to change in order to appease the younger audience. If you're commissioner of MLB how would you balance out the two this this one side where they want it to be purist so you can compare over time versus really the business aspect of it of trying to attract younger audience yeah that's that's tough i i think if i'm the commissioner and i'm looking at the game from a financial perspective and i'm trying to figure out how i can maximize profits for owners and that sort of thing which as a fan i don't really care too much about of course but I think the money is going to be in the younger audience. If, if you're losing your, your newer generations, which you absolutely are, baseball is going to tank. So I think you've got to make some drastic changes, but uh, there are ways to do that without ruining the game. You know, with so many things we've seen it certainly in the last two years, politically, like something will get announced and everyone will lose their minds. And then a month later, everyone realizes it's actually not that big of a change. Um, I think a lot of that applies here. They can make some changes to, for instance, how quickly a game is completed. Um, they can make changes there that won't alter the entire game as some people would have, have others believe. So it's all a, all a kind of give and take, I suppose. But to me, and I'm, a, I, I'm probably somewhere in the middle, I'm not a 
I wouldn't call myself a purist, but I'm also not likely to jump ship because they make changes. I'm not, uh, I'm not that guy, but to me, I just want the game back. Right. I want to be able to enjoy it at, um, at my leisure and uh, major leagues, of course, has their own issues because there's, you know, billions of dollars involved, but man, I mean, I just love, I love playing it. I love going to a local game. Two quick questions for you. Pete Rose in the hall of fame. No way. Barry Bonds in the hall of fame. Oof, much harder. I, I would say no as well. Right. My my take is everyone says these people, the best, you know, some of the best players aren't in. I've been to the Hall of Fame. Great place. When you're elected, you get a plaque. The plaque is cool, but if you're going to the museum, you probably spend 90% of your time somewhere else. Barry Bonds, Pete Rose, they have artifacts, they have mentions, they have video clips, they have other things in the Hall of Fame. So it bothers me a little bit when people say they're not there because it's not like they've been erased entirely. They just don't get a plaque. That's that's the difference. So All right. Very good. All right. Well, we're going to move on then. We're going to finish up with a call-in segment, Shit You Here in the Office. And this is a fair one of our newer segments that we have on the show. And basically from time to time when you're working in an office, you hear a pretty crazy story. So the one time, you know, I was in an office, I, we decided to have an office question in which it was hypothetical. And the, the question was, if all four-year-olds went crazy and you had to take out four-year-olds, how many could you take out in an hour? Oh. Which is a crazy, crazy, morbid thought, right? And so at the time, my son was four. So, I mean, that's my only really point of reference there is my son. So I couldn't do that. So I really copped out in terms of that discussion in the office. Fast forward, oh, several years, I had this child at my house who drove me absolutely crazy, just got under my skin, was here all day, and I could not wait for this child to leave my house kind of thing so i called up the next day i called up the guy that posed the question in the office and i said my answer is 32 <laughs> because i said i can picture this child and now i can take out 32 four-year-olds so that was some just like an odd situation an odd office story that i have so we have a couple callers on the line did you want to comment on that? I'm sorry, I cut you off. Oh, no, no. Go ahead, Jason. Okay. So we have a couple callers on the line, and they're going to tell us about some uh, crazy shit that they heard in the office. First on the line is Allison. Allison, what's some shit that you heard in the office? Oh, man, I heard a lot of shit in the office. But one thing that did stick out, going through some reports, uh, we had a, a complainant that looked like to be a familiar name, and lo and behold, it was one of our officers. And as I'm reading the two line of the report, Somebody had stolen his recipe for his bread. Uh, this officer liked to bake on the side. And when he wasn't at work, he was at home baking. And somebody stole his beloved recipe for the bread that everybody liked. And uh, it made it all the way to get a CC number and file a complaint. That was uh, quite an interesting one. That's funny. I, I think of what was it? The, the lady that was outside of McDonald's that called 911 because they wouldn't give her a Whopper. I mean, it wouldn't give her a Big Mac, you know, <laughs> that's what I'm thinking of. Like, are you seriously, you're going to fill out a complaint over a stolen recipe? It's a quality of life issue, Jason. I am here for this. It is a throwback to a time when family recipes were sacred. I think we need to do an all out investigation on this incident. <laughs> 
we should have asked her like what was the final ruling of it I, <laughs> was there a arrest made or is this a still an open investigation throw away the key oh <laughs> man especially if it was inside the office that would be certainly crazy yeah. yes all right next on the line is eric eric what's some shit that you heard in the office i once heard a dispatcher explain a 911 call saying that the same woman calls every night in the summer to complain about the noise of her neighbor's air conditioning Man, that's a, just another one. Just <laughs> every night being called about the neighbor's air conditioning. You know, what are you going to do about that? Because that's what? not breaking any laws. I mean, there's certainly noise ordinances in every community, but probably that air conditioner wasn't extremely loud to where the police could really do anything about. So it's just totally yeah. frivolous, especially to do it every night absolutely i wonder if a personal visit would solve that or if that was tried and the calls continued <laughs> oh man especially they said it you know like all summer so it's like at what point are you gonna do that she's gonna she's gonna become her own pop project how do you get this woman to quit calling basically and have a whole yes. a whole pop project on it so that would be funny all right next on the line is jim jim what's some shit that you're in the office well, <laughs> we got into this crazy discussion about six months ago about umami. So I love to cook and I just innocently mentioned umami. And I just, I thought that people knew what umami was, but apparently not. These guys are looking at me like I have three heads. So I'm trying to explain to them about, you know, the five tastes. You've got sweet and sour and bitter and salty, and then there's umami. And then I was kind of giving them examples, you know, mushrooms or umami, miso, uh, other fermented things have the umami, and they just weren't getting it. So I'm like, you know what? MSG is the quintessential umami flavor. So I brought in some MSG from home. And I was having everybody try it, you know, and everybody, it's, it's like we had this line of Coke out in the office and everybody's kind of getting their little, little bit of it. And, you know, they, everybody's like, oh, I don't like this. I don't like this, whatever. And so we just, it just turned into this big discussion about what umami was and how you find it and what has it and what doesn't. And, and me trying to explain it to them, it's sort of like, it's like thinking of a new color, right? When you, when you have to explain something and it's kind of difficult to, to get people to understand what you're saying. I thought if I just showed them that that would work. So to this day, they all give me shit about umami because they still don't quite grasp what, what it is exactly. Yeah. I don't know if I just misremembered or was never taught, but I don't think I realized that that was the fifth taste. No, I, I Googled it while he was talking. I think he presents it as uh, everyone else at his work is in the wrong for not knowing it, but I think maybe he's got that back. <laughs> It is it is fascinating. It, it it does remind me of you either just trying something or you hear something on the on the internet and you do it. There was a couple of years ago, there was what it was the color of the dress where people oh, were yes. looking at yes. it and saying that it was just total vast answers about what the color of the dress were and it just kind of totally took over the whole entire office that particular day and that seems like a similar situation the msg gets put in there's just a line of people trying it and deciding that they don't like it but i could understand like that that just totally taking over and, and being a crazy story <laughs> all right next on the line is chris chris what is your shit that you heard in the office I once heard a story from a, a former law enforcement officer, how he spent time out in the hills of a Kentucky area. He said back in the, maybe the late 70s, early 80s, he uh, 
busted a, a, a lesbian commune that was one of the largest pot growers in all of the East Coast. I mean, how else are you going to make a living in a commune in the middle of Kentucky? Wow. I'm going to play the, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all card. <laughs> so you get that visual in your head though, right? I, I get that visual of a bunch of women in the creek <laughs> washing clothes, just uh, planting and growing marijuana on the side. Kudos for them for creating such a big market. Mm. All right. So last but not least, Jessica, what's some shit that you heard in the office? Well, we had a deputy one time suggest that uh, our dips, which we call drunken public, they don't have a substance abuse problem. They are carbo loading to stay warm during the winter. <laughs> that is a true story. Those are the words. And this deputy was dead serious when they said it. <laughs> That's, that Silver is lining. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, alcohol does keep you warm. And if it's super chilly outside, then yeah, that's uh, that's what's going to happen. I uh, see the logic. Yeah. Yeah, certainly <laughs> can understand that. So that shit you heard in the office. And our last segment to the show is Words of the World. And this is where I give the guests the last word. Joe, what are your words to the world? I am going to quote my favorite army colonel. Colonel Sherman Potter from the MASH 4077 once said, if you're not where you are, then you're no place. This is something I have repeated to my daughter multiple times if she's having a rough time or doesn't want to do an activity or something. If you're sitting in that meeting and you don't want to be there, you don't have a choice. So make the best of it, I guess. If you are doing some other activity that you don't want to be doing, uh, make the best of it. If you're not where you are, then you're no place. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. <laughs> but <laughs> I do appreciate you being on the show, Joe. <laughs> Thank you so much. And you be safe. Uh, it's my pleasure, Jason. You as well. Thank you. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.